Talks podcast. I'm your host, David Petro. Our regular season is done, but the OME annual conference is coming up, and so on these next few episodes, we will hear the voices of our featured and deep dive speakers for this conference with the theme of embracing change, moving forward, continuing to grow. On this episode, we'll hear from featured speakers who will be talking on Thursday, May 2nd, the first day of the conference, and we're going to start with Alita Klassen. Okay, so I'm speaking with Alita Klassen. Alita, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. So thanks for talking to us today. You're one of our featured speakers at OME 2024 this year in May. You are speaking on the Thursday. But before we talk about what you are going to speak about, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you're connected to math? Sure. So I've been teaching for about 12, 13 years now. And I first started teaching in Attawapiskat in Northern Ontario, uh, which was a really interesting experience and really helpful for my development as a teacher. And then I've been with the Waterloo Public Board since then. And I've had different roles like English teacher, math teacher, uh, consultant, coach, learning support teacher. And all of those roles have helped me think about teaching in different ways and have really expanded my thinking about teaching. And most of those roles have been in supporting math instruction. So I feel very heavily invested in math. All right. All right. And as I said, you're one of our featured speakers. I wonder if you can tell us what you're going to be talking to us about. So my featured session is all about, it's called Making Sense of Students' Sensemaking with Consolidating Discussions. And people call that moment at the end of a task that you do with this class different things. They might call it the consolidation or the close. But I, regardless of what we call it, I don't think we can underestimate the importance that a conversation about the learning that happens, that, that, that the importance that that conversation can have on students' understanding of the problem itself, of a math concept or a math procedure. And I think there are opportunities in the planning of that task, in the facilitation of that task, and then the discussion after that can afford us rich ways for students to make sense of each other's thinking and for teachers to help guide that sense-making process. I see those moments at the end of a task as having three purposes, to promote the notion that all students have ideas and interpretations worth contributing, to keep students thinking so it hasn't stopped at the end of the class, and to foster their skills or build their skills in making connections specifically with math, but also in making sense of the math, and to ensure that a mathematical focus is consolidated or clarified for students. So with those purposes in mind, my goal with this session is to make it somewhat interactive to have give people an opportunity to try a task in multiple ways so that they can sort of uh, practice that anticipating component and then think about if the learning focus was a certain thing, what would they choose to consolidate? Maybe, um, and then think about the questions they would pose to the class, what discussion moves they would use, And then with that experience in mind, I would try to then consolidate the consolidation 
a little bit and um, propose like a, th- a synthesis of some thinking that I've been doing about blending the five practices for orchestrating mathematical discussions with building thinking classrooms, with culturally responsive teaching in the brain, so that we are thinking about how students contribute to those conversations. So it's not just like five students always putting up their hand to share ideas. How do we make a teacher less pivotal to the conversation gradually so that it's more of an authentic discussion of ideas rather than um, like a teacher being the go-between student responses? And also what kind of a culture is needed in a classroom to reinforce and cultivate the connections that students can make with each other as well as with math. So I think I'm in total agreement with you in the sense that that consolidation part is probably, to me, is one of the most important pieces in that, you know, I think it is a chance for you to take the lesson which has primed the students on the whatever topic you're you're speaking on and now you can now solidify those ideas now that the student has some background information as opposed to just coming in teaching a straight socratic lesson giving some work and so on and and so forth so yeah i think i'm i'm with you on that i i think that consolidation is really important and, and thinking about it ahead of time is certainly really important as well Yes, I agree 100%. The times when I I have felt like the consolidation had the most success in a classroom that I've been in was when I felt more most prepared to do the consolidation like I had I had anticipated what students will do. Now they will surprise us all the time and tackle problems in completely different ways and it's really important for us to figure out ways to connect those ideas um, if they support the greater learning focus or respond to them in the moment with the group in a way that supports their sense making too. So now are you going to be doing a breakout session as well? Yes, I will be doing a breakout session and that one is all about how we can foster cognitive independence And it's something that I'm interested in learning more about. So Zaretta Hammond talks about independent and dependent learners in her book, Culturally Responsive Teaching and the Brain. And I think that working with building thinking classrooms and a lot of the work that we're doing in math education in Ontario in particular is all about supporting more independent thinkers in our classrooms. And so what I'm hoping to do with this session is maybe continue what was done in the featured session, but also expand that to not just a consolidation moment in a classroom, but give people a chance to experience some things that help us define or understand more the definition of dependent and independent learners. And then um, and then, then interrogate some of the practices that we are using in our classrooms to see how they do or do not support building independence. So we, I will give an example. So in my classroom, this was about two years ago, I was doing some things that required a lot of reflection by students. So they needed to reflect on different learning moments in the classroom when someone helped them solve a problem or 
when a representation helped clarify a concept. And it required a lot of like written work sometimes. And I realized that those tasks gave already independent learners access to more learning, but students for whom like written reflections weren't as easily accessible, I was perpetuating the dependence they had on me or perpetuating the idea that they couldn't do something um, because they found that challenging. So what did I need to do to better scaffold their uh, reflection process so that they could take advantage of that really important metacognitive experience or practice? So I'm reflecting on my own personal practices, but I'm uh, wanting to have a session that helps us together um, share ideas and experiences so that we can work at helping students become more independent, not independent of us or independent of the teacher or the peers in their classroom, but independent learners who rely less on um, other people and more on themselves. Like they have habits, they have cognitive habits to um, explore their own learning. Okay, so we look forward to hearing and seeing you at OME this uh, spring in Kingston. Uh, Alita, thanks for talking to us today. Thank you very much. That was Alita Klassen talking about her Thursday featured session on consolidation after doing a task. Next up is Peter Lilliadal. Okay, I'm talking with Peter Lilliadal. Peter, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you, David? Good, good. So, Peter, we are talking because you are one of our featured speakers at OME 2024 in May. Uh, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your connection to mathematics. All right. I'm a former high school math teacher, currently a professor of mathematics education at Simon Fraser University and the author of the book Building Thinking Classrooms. Okay. And as I said, you're one of our featured speakers. You're speaking on the Thursday uh, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit of what you will be talking about this year. So building thinking classrooms has become quite popular in Ontario and around the world. And many teachers see building thinking classrooms through sort of its hallmark practices of random groups and vertical whiteboards and thinking tasks. In the featured session at OAME this year, I'm going to look past that. I'm going to go beyond how we start the lesson and how we have students working at the whiteboards in the middle of the lesson. I'm going to focus more on how we close out the lesson and how we do that through consolidation, meaningful notes, and check your understanding questions and why these are important practices for uh, turning collective knowing and doing into individual knowing and doing and how to help turn that collaborative work into retained learning for the individual. Okay, so can you give me a sample example of something specific you're going to be mentioning? Yeah, I'm going to talk specifically about the three practices that close out a lesson, how we consolidate a lesson and what types of consolidation to use in different circumstances. I'm going to talk about the new research on meaningful notes and how we can get students to generate notes through note making rather than note taking. And I'm going to look at uh, the power of check your understanding questions as a way for students to really self-assess what, they're, what, what they've taken out of the lesson. 
So I'm glad you, you mentioned research. Uh, I, it's my understanding that your research on these ideas are, is ongoing. Oh, yes, very much so. And I'm curious, as you're doing some of the new research, if that is changing some of the ideas that you've had or, or if, you're, if it's just sort of augmenting what you sort of already come up with. In some ways, it's augmenting, but in other ways, it's changing. So there are some of these practices are just more nuanced, more refined ways to enact the practices that were talked about in the main building thinking classroom book. In many ways, they're, they're micro moves. Other practices we're finding are actually improvements on what the practices in the main building thinking classroom book are. So, and other things are, are other bits of research is showing that, okay, there is where we thought there wasn't much difference, the differences are bigger. And where we thought the differences were bigger, the differences aren't that big. Yeah. So the, the work is always being updated. If I was to write the book now, it would be a different book. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, I mean, I, I know like you have been uh, a speaker at, in Ontario uh, for many years now. I'm, I'm happy to say, you know, well before the book w- was even published. And I'm, I'm curious uh, now that you've said that, like how, like, how do you see a book written now being different than the one that is, that is currently out? Well, it would lean into the newer research, of course. I suspect that one of the big differences would be around the four toolkits that I, that I talk about in chapter 15 on my book, which is what is the implementation order? When the research on the implementation order was done, it was done in a, in a setting where nobody knew what building thinking classrooms was. It was how do we take teachers and help them implement these 14 practices? And the research revealed what is the, the correct sequence, the optimal sequence to do that in. But that, but that was done within a vacuum where nobody knew what thinking classrooms was, where teachers weren't engaging in thinking classroom work in a school where other teachers were doing so. The landscape of building thinking classrooms is very different now. Many, many teachers are, are, are using it in part or in whole. Many teachers know what it is. So teachers aren't coming to building thinking classrooms uh, ex nilo anymore. They're coming with, with ideas, understandings, having seen it, maybe used it already. So I think the implementation sequence would be quite different if, different if I was to do that research again. So it's almost as if you you come into some of your new research almost uh, uh, kind of hitting the ground running as opposed to starting cold. Yeah, I would say so. And I, I'm gonna I'm gonna guess based on a lot a lot of the reaction and a lot of people building their own resources. I mean, are you finding things that some of the people are doing on their own helpful in in some of those uh, you know some of those ways? Uh, of course. Of course, teachers are incredibly innovative, and some of the things that they are finding and doing are are great contributions, right? And in building thinking classrooms, I talk about the difference between macro moves and micro moves. So the macro moves are the 14 practices. We want to use random groups. The micro moves are what are the small little nuanced ways that we want to do so. And teachers are are forever working on the micro moves. And I learn constantly from from ideas that they're generating. But I also learn that sometimes 
choices that are being made in these micro moves are for efficiency reasons rather than effectiveness reasons. And, and of course, as teachers, we have to be efficient in our, in our efforts in order to be able to sustain our, our work. But, you know, my research was about what was the things, what were the things that were most effective for getting students to think? So I, I guess that's, that's always sort of been my big question is how to balance sort of the logistics of getting it done with the effectiveness of having done it. Yes. And that is, of course, that is, I live that experience every day, especially when I'm in classrooms. So I'm, I'm in Honolulu right now. I've spent this week teaching 16 classrooms uh, or eight classrooms, 16 lessons. And, you know, you live that reality every time you're in a classroom, that tension between what is, what is most effective and what is most efficient. I'll give you a really clear example of that. In the original building thinking classrooms work, we found that using cards to randomize students was, was the best way. And there is certain efficiencies and inefficiencies with that. And there are certain effectivenesses. So one of the big, uh, one of the big effects of that is that students really f- see that it's random and they really feel the, the agency in choosing that card. Some of the inefficiencies are that kids lose cards, they crumple cards, they, they swap cards. So it's, it's, it's not a super efficient practice. It's not inefficient, but it's not a super efficient practice. A lot of teachers, therefore, lean into some digital randomizers. And, and in my book, I talk about ways to heighten the sense of randomness using things like Picker Wheel and Flippity and Class Dojo and so on and so forth. Since a book has been published and when I spend time in classrooms watching teachers who have chosen that form of efficiency over cards, I've started to observe something that is incredibly troubling, actually, which is that when we use digital randomizers, which is more efficient, there is a huge amount of microbullying that goes along with it. So, for example, the teacher hits flippity, the randomization happens, and then you hear, ugh. Or, oh, or snickering. <laughs> like these are very subtle, small little things. But when you watch the effect it has on specific students in the class, you realize that these micro, these, these microaggressions, these forms of microbullying in such a public venue cuts incredibly deep for some of these students. And we don't see any of that when we do cards, when we do random randomizing through cards, there is no expressions. There is none of that microbullying because the students don't know who's in their group. And when they get to their group and they find out who's there, there's no audience to grunt in front of, or, and even if they do grunt or moan, there is no audience to amplify the, the negative effect of that sort of microaggression. So, I mean, it's clearly an ongoing process. It's an ongoing process. Okay, so now are you doing a breakout session with us as well? I'm doing two breakout sessions. I'm doing a breakout session with Kyle Webb out of Regina, and we are going to actually model a full curricular lesson. It's a high school lesson, a full curricular high school school lesson, start to finish, uh, showcasing all of the new ways to close out a lesson. And I'm doing the same thing with Megan Giroux, also at Regina, but at an elementary level 
And Megan is the co-author of my new forthcoming book on tasks for the thinking classroom, uh, K to five. Yes, and I know we're, we're all anxiously awaiting uh, that book to come out because I think, you know, that's always one of the the, uh, one, the questions when I, I talk to teachers about is, you know, you know how, like, how do I actually implement this with curriculums, with activities? Like, I, I love the ones that I've done, but now, now what do I do? Yeah. Where do I get more and how do I do them? What right. do I do with them? Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, we look forward to uh, seeing and hearing you at OME 2024 uh, this May. Peter, thanks for talking to us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And I can't wait to get to OAME again. And we'll see you in May. All right. Thank you. That was Peter Lilliedahl, who is also talking about consolidation, but specifically in the context of his thinking classroom structure. Next up is Octavia Beckles. All right, I'm speaking with Octavia Beckles. Octavia, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, David. Thanks for asking. Octavia, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you are connected to math? So I'm an educator with the York Region District School Board, and I'm currently serving as a curriculum consultant uh, centrally assigned for culturally relevant responsive practices and for mathematics. In my role, I support educators with their mathematics instruction and practices. Prior to being in this role, I was a classroom teacher for many years, providing math instruction as well as other content subjects. All right. And you are one of our featured speakers at OME 2024. You are speaking on the Thursday as a featured speaker. Uh, Octavia, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what your featured session is going to be on. So um, in my featured session, I'm going to be talking about mathematics for empowerment and liberation. And this is about telling the stories that have not been told. So while there are often particular identities named when discussing underachievement in mathematics, mathematics reform in many places, including Ontario, have largely been centered on pedagogical practices or approaches that are perceived as neutral and have ignored community scholarship that calls for culturally relevant practices and decolonizing practices in mathematics instruction. So the stories and contributions of non-European cultures to mathematics, especially those of Black and Indigenous communities, have been erased, devalued, or appropriated. This can reinforce negative stereotypes for both educators and learners, and can lead to disengagement for students who already experience marginalization within the field. So as a Black woman educator, my talk will focus on Black affirming teaching and learning in mathematics to restory who performs mathematics and what mathematics is used for. So I, you know, I've heard a lot of people talk about empowerment in terms of mathematics, but I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit on the idea of liberation. What Can you give us an example of what you're talking about there? So mathematics is used to do many things. And we often think about mathematics through how it can help us get an occupation and perform work. But mathematics is also used to determine things like in our world, like who gets funding, where resources are allotted. And that is speaking about like liberation, right? So Mathematical modeling, these pieces that are introduced into the curriculum, actually create space for us to think about how can we actually use mathematics to actually address inequities that exist in our world. And that is what I'm talking about when I talk about mathematics for liberation. 
So when you were talking to teachers and you are, are trying to help lead them down this path, what are, what are some things that you can tell them to get started, like the next class that they're teaching? So I don't know that it can start the next class because one of the pieces that needs to be paired with this is actually developing our cultural consciousness, right? So we need to actually be aware of like, what are the social dynamics? Like what are our power and privilege and how is it that we experience in the world and how that might be different for other identities, right? So the first step actually is actually to examine these pieces, right? So it's important to do this because when we engage with learners, we want to ensure that we're engaging in mathematics in ways that actually affirm identities as opposed to either further marginalize them or do more harm, right? So the first step that I would tell teachers to do is think about like, what is, how have you developed your cultural competency? How have you engaged in conversations around marginalization, who is advantaged, who in disadvantage, and think about what those experiences are, um, because that is really the starting point. Okay. And besides our featured session, one of our featured sessions, you are going to be doing a breakout session. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So actually your question connected to that because during the workshop, we're actually going to dive deeper into culturally relevant and responsive practices. So this in that session, I'm going to encourage um, educators to actually engage in exploration and conversations about what that would look like for them in their context and how one might design these experiences and how they can help students see all cultures as doers and contributors of math knowledge. Okay, so thank you for giving us a little brief idea of what you're going to be speaking at at OME 2024 this spring. Uh, Octavia, we look forward to seeing and hearing you. Thank you. I'm very excited to be there. Looking forward to meeting you all. That was Octavia Beckles, who will be speaking about mathematics for empowerment and liberation. Up next, we will hear from Jenna Laib. Okay, I'm speaking with Jenna Laib. Uh, Jenna, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Uh, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and how you're connected to math. I am a K-8 math specialist for public schools of Brookline in Massachusetts in the United States. Um, And in this role, I work with both teachers and I work with students. So I do some coaching. I'll do some PD. I'll do some student support. I've been a classroom teacher in the past. I taught elementary and I've also taught middle school math. Um, So that is the focus of my day work, but I'm also, in addition to like my local math ed community and my school, I find a lot of joy in math communities online (laughs) and like Twitter, which I know not a lot of people say they find joy in Twitter, but that I've been really, really fortunate to learn from and engage with some amazing and thoughtful people from around the world. And I'm so grateful for them. And uh, I'm with you on that. Twitter has been a great a great source of of math information and social math socializing socializing uh, for me as well. Now, Jenna, you are one of our featured speakers. You're speaking on Thursday at OME 2024. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your featured session. Sure. So I'm going to be talking about data literacy and specifically focusing on an instructional routine that I call slow reveal graphs. So in a slow reveal graph, I take a data representation 
usually graphs, and I'll strip away all of the context, so the numbers, the labels, and then bit by bit, I reveal more of the graph to students. And with each of these reveals, the students revise their thinking, and they make sense of the mathematics. Um, and I've seen students go into really deep, like mathematical nuances of like the scale or these little tiny details in the graph. And they do it with a lot of enthusiasm, and they emerge with this like really pretty profound understanding of the graph that I feel like we don't always get when we just hand them the full thing. And it's wild to hear kids talking and debating about the graph and analyzing things with just like that passion. So yeah, I'm going to be talking about what slower graphs look like, other forms that data literacy might take in the classroom and how it's linked to other mathematical topics that we teach. Now, I love your slow reveal graphs resource. And if anyone hasn't seen it, we'll put a link in the uh, in the show notes. So many, so many that are there ready for people to use. They're already in that form in, in the slideshow format. So uh, we really appreciate that you've done that work for us. Oh, thank you. It's like a fun thing I do at night. <laughs> but... you, you and I could be friends, I think. <laughs> No, and I get to hear from people around the world when they like visit the website or use it in their classrooms. Um, and that's been really exciting to hear about what data literacy looks like around different places. So I'm curious, you know, where where did that come from? Like, where? how did you come up with the idea? Of, or if it's not your idea, I mean, you, you <laughs> certainly have run with it. Uh, wh- where did that come from? Yeah, I think I formalized the idea. I would say the seed of the idea for me came from a talk that Dan Meyer did at NCTM, where he was talking about real world math versus like real mathematics. And he was talking about dialing up the math, I think was the like the metaphor that he used throughout it, where it was like, sometimes we just give kids a textbook task that's so mathy that they are immediately turned off. But what if you strip away the context and make it feel a little bit less mathy, but then you turn up the math slowly and like they just get really curious and invested. And he had shown one with a graph, but it wasn't, it was just like one example that he gave out of many examples. And then my friend Brian Bouchard had also taken this and done one, I think it was about Halloween candy, this would have been like not 10 years ago, maybe like eight years ago. And he had posted to a blog. Again, the math online community is just so beautiful and so gracious with everything that they share, both knowledge and resources. Um, and I had seen him post it and I tried it out. And then I started collaborating with Brian and a couple other friends like Cassia Wedekind, Heidi Fessenden. And we started developing it into more of a routine. And then I think I was like a little bit faster with like Google Slides. <laughs> so I just like started generating a lot more of them. And I really got fascinated by like, how do these ideas develop in students? What kinds of questions are good to ask? What's good about the structure of this as a routine and not just like a one-off task? Um, and so I got kind of invested in the project and made this website and like to collaborate with people from all over as they contribute things or as they have questions. And it's been fun. So... I know this is a uh, an audio podcast, but can you describe a particular favorite slow re- reveal graph of yours? Ooh, a favorite? Um, I know they're all your children. I but... know. One... <laughs> I do. Let's see. I'm trying to think of like a really big favorite. And sometimes like the ones that become the favorites are because I had a great experience doing it with students. Um, and I haven't done all of the ones I've posted with students. I think one that I really like doing with students, 
that I've done before, like in some online platforms. So if you Google, you can probably find it is about deadly animal attacks and how many people are dying from these like different animals. It's very bleak and gruesome, but I've done it with like elementary age children. Um, And it just, the way that like the graph, like the particular visual, it like lends itself to a lot of really good conversations about scale and about pictographs. And also most American kids are surprised that the hippo is so dangerous. We don't think of hippos as like super dangerous. And actually a friend from Canada had said that you guys had like a hippo. Is this correct? That there was like a house hippo PSA years ago in Canada? Yes. And so she was also shocked that hippos were so dangerous because Canada had deceived her with this public service announcement. <laughs> That's us, the Canadians that are deceptive. <laughs> so that one is always really fun to do. I actually really like a lot of the social justice ones too, where we're talking, like it's an entry point into a difficult conversation, whether it's one about race or whether it's one about like income disparities. Uh, like there's one that I really liked doing with some sixth graders that was about food deserts, where it's like people that don't live within close proximity to quality grocery stores. And like they don't have access to fresh fruits and vegetables. They live in a food desert. And like looking at where these happen and like who is it impacting, you can get a lot of really interesting student comments about like what this data is useful for or like kind of the hidden biases in data that I just feel like I wasn't getting from students before I started doing this. Okay. And so you are also doing a breakout session. Well, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what you think that will look like. Sure. So that one is about building ideas and also student identity. And then I'm going to focus on using and centering student thinking to go deeper with the mathematics. So I think that like when I first started teaching, I'd come in really overly prepared like here's, I'm going to present the material. Here it is like down to the minute. Here's what students will work on. Like very rigid because like that's what you do when you're feeling anxious. <laughs> but then I realized that students are coming in with background knowledge and they're coming with all these brilliant ideas that you have to figure out how to incorporate and build off and how to like help them build up this mathematical like network in their brain rather than just like me pouring knowledge into them. And so I've become really fascinated in like how positioning, how I listen to kids and then incorporating their ideas more. Um, so I'm going to be talking about like thinking about learn- listening stances and learning stances with kids, how we can use their ideas in the moment to go deeper. And I think I wrote like we're going to be honoring our commitment both to the mathematics and to students' humanity. Because I think I hear all the time from people that like students are brilliant. And yes, I agree. But also we want to continue to push them forward with the mathematics. We don't just want to like settle with their brilliance where it is. All right. So we are looking forward to seeing and hearing you at OME 2024. So Jenna, thanks for talking to us today. Thank you. I'm excited. And we'll see you in the spring. That was Jenna Laib speaking about slow reveal graphs. And our final speaker for Thursday, May 2nd is Crystal Watson. All right. I'm talking with Crystal Watson. Crystal, how are you doing? I'm wonderful. Thank you for having me. Crystal, I'm wondering if you'd tell us a little bit about yourself and how you are connected to math. Absolutely. So I am in Cincinnati, Ohio. I am currently an assistant principal at a pre-K through sixth grade school. I am connected through mathematics because I... I'm a career changer. I moved into education a while ago and 
it's funny. It's a funny story because I showed up ready to interview, uh, to teach anything but math. And the interviewer said, but we need you. And I, and I felt compelled to move into education. Um, so I said, put me there. So I, you know, the rest is history. Once I got into the math classroom and saw um, what an impact I could make as a, a um, struggling learner in the past of math, it, it just awakened such a fire in me to continue in, in teaching and learning and doing math, um, especially with youth. Okay. And as I said, you are, you're one of our featured speakers here at OME 2024. You're going to be speaking on the Thursday. Uh, Crystal, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what you'll be talking on. Yeah. So one of my most impactful pieces of just being an educator has been building belonging within my math classroom. So I've noticed that, you know, working with teachers and then also in my my own classrooms, I have not been able to really tap into mathematics and the potential for mathematics with each student without fostering a sense of belonging within that space. So I will be talking about five factors of belonging Um, in mathematics, because even with good student-teacher relationships, children can still lack a sense of belonging in the classroom, and they become disconnected from the learning, ultimately affecting their outcomes, um, academically, social-emotionally, identity-based outcomes, etc. So when, during our time together in my session, we will dig into those five factors that assist in developing those deep, deeper senses of belonging amongst children in our classrooms and then within our school so that folks can walk away with a clear definition of belonging, what it looks like in mathematics, and some tangible strategies to to deploy immediately within their math spaces. So when you are thinking of a student belonging in your class, what are some indicators that a student is not belonging? Oh, that is a wonderful question. Uh, Some indicators might be not engaging with the work. Uh, So that could mean that they're not turning in work. So it's not always about, I hear a lot of um, excuses about, you know, how students aren't ready for the, the type of work that we're putting in front of them or students are in spaces where they don't have uh, help at home and things like that. If there is a sense of belonging, they feel like math is for them, they will at least attempt, right? So if you are just taking stock of your, of your, your classroom and you're noticing that you have some students that just really aren't engaging with the work that's put in front of them, they're not engaging in discourse, they're kind of, um, you know, struggling, but not productively. And what that might look like is struggling and giving up, right? So we don't want our students to give up. We want them to say, I can do this and I'm going to keep doing this. And that happens through their belonging. So belonging looks like mistake making. Belonging looks like safety, right? Safety within that safe ma- that mistake making. It also looks like um, not not disconnecting myself from the mathematics, but seeing mathematics as a part of me, right? So if you, if you're noticing that students are not able to connect themselves to math and the outside world, then a sense of belonging might be lacking there as well. So I imagine that that sense of belonging is very unique to each child, but what are some more general things that you can do in your classroom to help foster belonging for your class? 
Yeah, for sure. One thing, I think the biggest thing that we can do is allow students to tell their stories, right? So honoring the fact that some students just don't feel like math people. They they don't feel like math is, is their strength and that's okay, right? That doesn't mean that they can't learn, they can't do, and they can't engage with mathematics on a real level. So the one thing that we can do is encourage those stories to be told and honored within the space so that we can engage them in ways that they know how to engage with mathematics. So whether that looked like I'm engaging you through cooking or through, you know, money or through architecture, whatever those things might mean, right? So that means getting to know our, our students on an intimate level, understanding what, what makes them want to learn something. So I said in a recent talk um, that, you know, students will will want to hone a skill when they really like what they're learning, right? Or they really feel connected to what they're learning. So just as a child might uh, work really hard to become really good at football, they can also feel a sense of connection to want to be really good at mathematics. Okay. So thank you for talking to us today. We look forward to hearing from you and seeing you in May. Uh, Crystal, thanks again for talking to us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. I can't wait. That was Crystal Watson, who'll be talking about five factors of belonging in the mathematics classroom. Now, besides those featured speakers, there will be lots of other breakout sessions each day to choose from. This is a face-to-face conference in Kingston, and right now, pre-registration is open with full registration ready to open soon. Interested participants can register at our MCIS registration site, That link and others mentioned in this episode can be found in the podcast description. Next week, we'll do a preview of the featured speakers from from Friday, May 3rd. So stay tuned for that. And in the meantime, stay safe.